Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. On the last day of a hot and incredibly dry June, four criminals appeared bound before the bench of London's primary criminal court, the Old Bailey. The year was 1714. Robert and Margate Cook, Thomas Davis and Deborah Stent were facing burglary charges. The team allegedly pulled off a pewter heist in the house <laughs> in the house of Mary Mellers the month before. A pewter heist. A pewter heist. <laughs> Very high stakes. Um, Robert Cook made the mistake of bragging about the crime, while Margate and Deborah were caught selling off the pewterware for cash. The stakes were high. The punishment for burglary in early modern London was death. Without much fanfare, Robert Cook and his sidekick, Thomas Davis, were found guilty and sentenced to death. But Cook's wife, Margate, and her friend Deborah Stent were acquitted, not because of insufficient evidence or because of mitigating circumstances, but by reason of their coverture. The doctrine of coverture deprived married women of legal status, merging her legal personhood with her husband's. This magical get-out-of-jail-free card, or judicial prejudice, as legal scholars might say, um, preserved thousands of English women from the gallows ever since the Norman conquest of England in the 11th century. But this loophole in the patriarchy wasn't all fun and games. Today, we'll get into the complex ways that the doctrine of coverture shaped the lives of married women in the British Isles from the 11th to the 19th centuries. So, you know, just covering a tiny long, bit of ground. Yeah, long durée. <laughs> I'm Sarah. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. <laughs> Coverture was one of many legal concepts that made up English common law. People throw that concept around sometimes, but few people know exactly what it means. We often call couples common law husband and wife. Common law in general, and English common law in particular, is a customary body of laws. That is, law that is a widespread traditional practice, but not necessarily written as a statute or codified into civil law. So basically, it's just law because people think that it's law. 
I feel like there's plenty of analogies that we can use here for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, my favorite one is because I took a history of paper making class. And, oh, wow. And I had to write this big paper on um, paper making for paper money. Weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what an what a oddly specific class. class yes. Yeah, Niagara <laughs> University, y'all. Do it. Um, so... Uh, our paper money in the U.S., it's not backed by precious metals. Yeah, not anymore. Even, right. Yeah. So it only has worth because we invest it with value simply by all agreeing that it's valuable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Coverture was much like this. 17th century jurists like to use the analogy of a stream. In the 1632 juridical text, the laws, resolutions of women's rights, or the laws provision for women, they spelled women, woe woe man, because they they come from men. Mm. Um, Quote, when a small brook or little river incorporateth with the Rhone or the Thames, the poor rivulet, which I think is... Rivulet. Rivulet. Well, they just spelled it stupidly then. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's they spelled revolt. it. They spelled it revolt, but they mm-hmm. probably it's probably a rivulet. Spelling was they weren't that into <laughs> loseth her name. So this little river right. loseth her name. It's carried and recarried with the new associate. It beareth no sway. It possesseth nothing during coverture. A woman, as soon as she's married, is called cover, in Latin nupta, which is veiled. So it means covered or veiled. Mm-hmm. As it were clouded and overshadowed, she hath lost her stream, end quote. Yeah. Common law made sharp distinctions between married women or femme cover, meaning covered women, and unmarried women or femme soul, meaning single women. Femme soul was almost always used to describe widows. Single women who were never married were just called virgins or maidens, regardless of whether they were actually virgins or not. Married status was the legal and cultural norm. One Stuart-era jurist referred to all women as either married or to be married. In and theory, B has two E's, just for fun. Yeah, and Bumblebee <laughs> married. In theory, femme souls were temporary and almost aberrant, but in practice, they were common enough. Right. So in a theoretical kind of way, they were like weird and outcast, but in real life, they, they existed. a lot of them. Yeah. Right. These French epithets, femme sole and femme couvert, used by medieval and early modern Brits, suggest that coverture has Norman origins. Just as a quick refresher for those of you whose medieval history is kind of rusty, the French Normans, as in from Normandy, so northern France, invaded England under William the Conqueror in 1066. Norman culture quickly blended with the Germanic culture of the Anglo people living in England to create a cultural hybrid. This hybrid culture still operates today, and this is to the dismay of Brits because they like to pretend that they're as far from French as they could possibly be, mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. hate everything French. But actually, they're all, like, kind of a little bit French. Mm-hmm. Yeah, James's family came to the um, British Isles in the Norman invasion. Oh, I'm sure mm-hmm. they did. Yep, they did. <laughs> <laughs> they seem super Norman but to me. <laughs> the only reason that matters is because they're, like, his dad's side of the family doesn't have that, like, Gaelic... Um, background. Do you know what I mean? Mm, Yeah, yeah, because they're Scottish. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Okay. Under the doctrine of coverture, a wife's legal and commercial identity was subsumed under her husband's. He was the primary individual in the relationship and she was a subordinate. A concurrent and competing interpretation of coverture is that under the law, husband and wife are one legal entity. In some cases, these two interpretations worked against each other. In other cases, they operated harmoniously alongside each other. 
A small subset of crimes known as mal and say were exempt from the strictures of coverture. That is, women were held accountable to them. The most common mal and say crimes were treason, brothel keeping, and murder. In all other crimes, married women were categorized as unaccountable, just like children, wards, quote, lunatics, by that they mean the mentally ill, Mm -hmm. and, quote, idiots, by that they mean the intellectually challenged or developmentally delayed. So they weren't held accountable, just like all of those people would not have Mm -hmm. been. They were incapable of being accountable, right? right? Exactly. So most of the time, husbands, as the primary and superior member of the marriage, were legally responsible for the crimes of their wives. This can be compared to how supervisors are often held accountable for the mistakes of their employees in the workplace, just today. Mm -hmm. Um, Margate Cook and Deborah Stent, whose story we told at the top of the show, benefited from this aspect of coverture, but the benefits of coverture were unquestionable outweighed by its disadvantages. For example, coverture condemned many women to painful burning deaths under the charge of petty treason. Jeepers creepers. When femme Colvert killed their husbands, they faced not only murder and hanging, but the aggravated charge of petty treason and the sentence of death by burning. In 1688, Mary Aubrey allegedly murdered her husband with the help of three men. It appears that her husband might have died by accidental suffocation after a night at the pub, but Mary made the mistake of dismembering him. She made the mistake. Oops. Oops, I happen to have dismembered my husband. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, So, you know, she she dismembered him, and, and then she disposed of his limbs around London, which was, you know, a bad call. Right, because even because if he had died accidentally, they think he really might have, but that maybe she panicked and was like, oh, my God, and, like, cut yeah, up his yeah, body. Yeah. And, and it's like, no, you could have just, like, left him there. Yeah, you could have just chilled out a little bit. Maybe. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, at trial, the three men who helped her were acquitted for lack of evidence, but Mary Aubrey was not so lucky. Her punishment summary reads, quote, the sentence against Mary Aubrey was that she should be carried from thence to the place from whence she came and thence be drawn to the place of execution and there be burnt with fire till she is dead, Ugh. end quote. Because they had to make sure they said they can't. She can't just be burned with fire. Like no, she they got to burn her until she's dead. Right. It's just ugh, gross. Um, as far as we know, Mary was burned to death that day. While the men who helped her went home free, they were unpunished. Women were therefore legally vulnerable to suspicion, wrongful convictions, and brutal executions when crimes were perpetrated against their husbands. Femme Colbert were also incredibly vulnerable to spousal abuse. Marital rape, a concept that is unfortunately debated even today, which, you know, makes my head explode with rage, uh, could not be prosecuted. You know, side note, marital rape wasn't a crime in the in New York State until the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Sexual violence within marriage was perfectly legal. Husbands were encouraged to employ, quote, lawful and reasonable correction, meaning beatings to a reasonable degree. In 1782, an English judge incorporated the common law idea of the rule of thumb into civic law. The rule of thumb allowed for English men to beat their wives with implements no wider than their thumb. The rule also prohibited men from beating their wives to the point of drawing blood, but protected all other forms of corporal punishment husbands inflicted on their spouses. Women were able to sue for restraining orders against husbands who were known to be excessively cruel, but they were unable to punish their husbands in any way for the bodily harm once it actually happened. Right. So it's like, it's almost like it's a crime if it almost happens, but then when it, once it actually does happen, There's no one can, that do, can be done. Right. right. 
And as Mary Aubrey's case illustrated, um, the woman who was um, burned for treason, wives who were suspected of injury or murder to their husbands were often charged not only with the violent crime, but also the capital crime of treason. How did it even make sense for husbands to be charged with murder for killing their spouses while wives were charged with murder and treason? I mean, both of them was a death sentence, but one of them is a sort of quick death death sentence right. by hanging, and then the other one is a really f- horrific death sentence that's very gendered, too. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer can be found in the systematic patriarchal organization of the state and family in early modern Europe. In the late 16th century and early 17th century, so starting... Um, in the late Elizabethan area, um, Elizabethan area, kind of through era. this era, area, area. <laughs> era. This, is, this over here is the Elizabethan area. <laughs> the Elizabethan area. Um, so wait, let's just say 1500s and 1600s. Um, European states began regulating family matters that had traditionally been handled socially or by ecclesiastical courts. States began to collect vital statistics and to regulate marriage and reproduction. Some examples include the outlawing of clandestine marriage, the strengthening of a father's legal rights over his children, and laws forbidding clandestine pregnancies and growing concerns with infanticide. Growing nation-states took an active interest in social engineering, presumably as a means to increase their authority and presence in everyday lives. For example, in 1666, viewing reproduction as a subject's obligation to his nation, France encouraged marriage and reproduction by offering tax cuts to growing families. Yeah, which sounds very modern to me. Yeah, it's very pronatalist. Yes, Mm -hmm. but in 1666. The state's seizure of control of the family from ecclesiastical courts gave them increasing authority over the everyday lives of their citizens. National paternalistic rhetoric portrayed the nation-state as a benevolent father to its citizens, which would be its little children. Mm -hmm. Um, This organization was mirrored in the formation of real families who built their authority upon a patriarchal frame using male alliances. So... The concept of bon ménagement, it's, I just really like this, this sort of term. It's devised by a fabulous historian of France, and her name is Julie Hardwick. Um, this whole idea, this is how the French kind of took this idea of um, the paternalistic state and made it into something that was, like, peopled by the family. So this idea of bon ménagement, it tied the management of the French household to its patriarch and the management of the French state by its monarch. So it's like, oh, the patriarch is just a tiny little monarch. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Actually, this makes a lot of sense to me because this is the same argument that the historian um, Stephanie McCurry makes about the plantation South, the the pre-Civil War South, that um, the the concept of mastery, that even men... um, Everyone was the master of their domain. Everyone was the the master of their, um, what's it called? Oh, masters of small worlds. Mm -hmm. They were essentially, like you're saying, the king of their family. Right. But then if you kind of expanded that outward, the... once the Confederacy is is created, right, the con- the the president and the government of the Confederacy is supposed to act like a um, the master of that world, right, and take yeah. care of its dependents in the same way right. that a, a household would run, right. So it has this sort of family structure, right, mm-hmm. but for the official nation mm-hmm. state, yeah, with yeah. all of the gendered aspects that go within that, like right. being a father, being a husband, that sort of thing, yeah. right, yeah, really interesting that that's um. You know, a, yeah, a 17th century French. Yeah, thing. <laughs> yeah, that that's that you see repeated. Yeah, over and over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Conditions were much the same in England. Take, for example, the trial of the Earl of Castlehaven in the 1630s. Castlehaven was convicted of rape and sodomy and executed in 1631. Historian of legal culture Cynthia Harrop has argued that his trial records indicate that he was condemned not for evidence of sexual deviance or of breaking the law, but because of the disorderliness of his household. Oh, my God. Right. The jurors were, like, disgusted. I would probably be executed. I think we'd all be executed. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My household is disorderly. Uh, English monarch Charles I, like other monarchs in Europe at the time, was deeply invested in the orderliness of the household as a means of ordering the state. He was father to a large family and ruler of a populous country. And he expected this familial hierarchy to be duplicated in every household in England. Right. So just how we see in France, the same thing happened in Mm -hmm, England. mm -hmm. So Castlehaven's peers were less concerned with his alleged sexual preferences for boys than they were with his favoring of young male servants over his son Mm. and his inability to properly control his wife and servants. Right. So his servants were like sleeping with one another and they're like, excuse me, you're the patriarch. You're supposed to be laying down the law. How is this allowed? Right. Right. Um, and the same thing with, like, his wife bought some things that he didn't want her to buy or something. And so people are like, oh, my God. You he know, has no so, control over his yeah, wife. Yeah. They're just, it's just they're running roughshod over him, you right, know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, so rather than focusing on his crimes, Castlehaven's trial revolved around the running of his household, which was judged to be disorderly. Castlehaven was executed because he failed to fulfill his duty as a patriarch. Both the patriarch and the monarch had absolute authority over their subjects, but in return, they were expected to manage their realms well. So the early modern nation-state was regarded as the European family writ large. As the Earl of Castlehaven's trial demonstrates, the state took its patriarchal philosophy very seriously. It was a way of life. And this way of life influenced every legal opinion that was delivered during this time. Cover chart was one of the tools that the British state used to reinforce this patriarchal structure. And this is why, since 1351, um, when a femme couvert killed her husband, she was guilty of treason as well as murder, because she was disrupting not only the patriarchal organization of her household, but by extension, patriarchal organization of the state. She had basically murdered the king of her household, thus treason. That is absolutely fascinating. I know, it took me a while to get to get around to that, but that's what I was trying to explain you have to yeah Yeah. you have to see how it all kind of builds together in order to understand that concept of why they would be charged with treason they're not just trying to be extra mean it's they literally viewed this as treason right that makes such sense it's really amazing (laughs) like you're shocked that i can make sense no that's not what i mean i mean that it it is it the way that it was reasoned out in in their minds, right. makes a lot of sense right. why like, they would consider that treason. Right. This because is not... it, it had the potential to undermine the whole shebang, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but at the same time, coverture created a venue for criticism of the patriarch, just like in the case of Castlehaven, where he was criticized for his patriarchal duties or lack thereof, or for the crown. So this allowed people to kind of criticize the crown if he wasn't being a good father to the, to the country. This happened in the case of Charles I, who was dethroned and beheaded in 1649 in the course of the English Civil War. So part of that rhetoric for why that happened was because he wasn't fulfilling his duties as a patriot. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, This is where the doctrine of coverture was unable to accommodate real life. Sometimes patriarchs, like the Earl of Castlehaven, were not holding up their end of the deal. 
Occasionally, husbands were wastrels or criminals <laughs> or poor providers. Um, sometimes they were effeminate men or, God forbid, sexual deviants or something like that. Mm-hmm. These situations occasioned debate about whether wives should be femme couvert when the entire purpose of her coverture, which is that patriarchal orderliness that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. was being undermined by her husband, who was supposed to be the last word. Yeah, it's really fascinating. In 16th and 17th century England, this question was debated hotly because of the tensions resulting from the English Reformation. Good Protestant Englishwomen sued for divorce or femme sole status on the grounds that their husbands were recusants, which is what they called Catholics who refused to submit to Henry VIII's Church of England. English jurists argued over whether women in these situations should be able to separate their legal identities from those of their husbands. Ultimately, wives of recusants usually remained femme couvert, but in practice, they were likely allowed much more leeway than ordinary married women. On the bright side, recusants who were married women were generally ineligible for legal penalties, unlike their husbands. So women with Protestant husbands could practice illegal religions openly and face no legal repercussions. Right, because they weren't legal people, so it didn't Uh really matter what religion they practiced. Mm. So it's kind of nice that, that women had this sort of freedom that men didn't have, sort of, because they didn't have legal status. You know, it's kind of a yeah, strange it's, thing. It's, yeah. So coverture prevented married women from having recourse over rape and bodily harm, as we mentioned before, but femme couvert also suffered extensively at the hands of property law. Wives could not own property. Even if they came to a marriage with considerable wealth, that wealth belonged to her husband after the vows. This is the way in which a woman was covered or veiled by her husband. That's where the word coverture comes from. Her small stream of resources joined his big manly river of (laughs) manliness. Um, Her husband could legally sell or dispose of all her belongings without her consent because nothing was actually hers. Right. It reminds me of parents who are like, this is my house. You can't, you know, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. everything you buy is mine. (laughs) It reminds me of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Several 13th century English lawyers argued that since wives did not legally own anything, they could not make a valid will. Acts of Parliament under Henry VIII revised this legal issue in 1542. From that point forward, English wives were entitled to make a will, but only with the express permission of their husbands. According to a comprehensive study performed by historian Mary Pryor, English married women became increasingly likely to compose wills between 1558 and 1700. Obviously, nothing happened about – it wasn't – she just – that was where her sample was. Mm, And she found that actually tons of women were making wills, even though there was this general belief that they they didn't need them. Right. Yeah. We suspect that during this time, married women were using will writing as a way to assert their rights despite the hindrance of coverture. In fact, we have evidence that English women were sometimes quite savvy in navigating restrictive property laws. Some women got around this aspect of coverture by transferring property to femme soul within their family. 17th century autobiographer Alice Thornton wrote of transferring her property to her mother, who was a femme soul, she was a widow, Mm -hmm. um, prior to her marriage so that her assets would not be swallowed up by her husband. Mm. But in most cases, married women lost every claim to property that they had to their husbands. Mm -hmm. This transfer of property to men made women vulnerable to rape and violence because predatory men saw marriage as a way to get rich quick. The best example of this is the story of a 15th century Norwich widow named Alice Crome. And we should pause here just to mention that this story comes to us from the book um, by an excellent historian named Sarah Butler. 
Uh, the death of Alice's husband left her in command of valuable property. This attracted many ambitious male suitors. You might say her milkshake <laughs> brings all of the boys to the yard. What? Why? No, what? Is it oh, no, I, words? no, I was just making weird faces. Okay. So John Williamson, for example, proposed marriage several times and Alice continually declined. He couldn't take no for an answer. This is unheard mm, of, right? Yeah. For guys? No, I can't even imagine. Um, so he abducted her Jeez. and held her prisoner for five weeks. During this time, he beat her and threatened to murder her if she didn't agree to the marriage. For some reason, I can't imagine why, yeah, really. um, she still didn't want to marry him. So he can, she continued to decline his proposal. Uh, he eventually gave up trying to marry her and tried um, to coerce her into revealing the whereabouts of the deeds to her land. So he thought, well, this is not working. I'm just going to mm-hmm. straight up steal this land. Mm-hmm. Um, but she held fast. He moved her to a more secure location and imprisoned her for a fur- further 18 weeks he chained her to the wall and administered regular beatings ellis stubbornly resisted his coercion god damn <clears throat> after months williamson hatched a different plan he approached alice's mother claiming to be her new husband he said that he and alice wished to sell off the lands in her possession alice's mother smelled something fishy so she deposited the land deeds with the mayor of norwich for safekeeping and freed alice from her prison it's pronounced norwich but Oh, Norwich, Norwich. Yeah. I mean, well, no, I mean, it's, I'm, just t- I'm just saying. I, <laughs> no, British, they just make up how to pronounce it. I know, it. I know. It's really annoying. Usually I can guess how it's the British way of pronouncing yeah. it, but. You said Norwich earlier. Did I? I think so, yeah. Oh. After the ordeal, Williamson moved to confiscate Alice's land under the pretense of a legal marriage. Alice hired a shrewd attorney who coached her in marital law. So she got this marriage annulled by the church and petitioned the court to halt Williamson's actions. Her petition argued that if they had been married, which was evidenced by her annulment, she would not have been able to gift Williamson land because husband and wife are all one person in the law, so a wife may not give her husband during their coverture neither land nor goods. So basically, Alice was made particularly vulnerable by the concept of coverture because it turned her into a commodity. Men were falling all over themselves trying to make a legal union with her so they could take over ownership of not only her, but of her land. But in court, Alice, who is obviously one badass woke woman, Mm -hmm. um, used the second interpretation of coverture, that husband and wife are one legal entity, to destroy Williamson's claim to her land, which was also based on the doctrine of coverture. So are we confused yet? I know. I know. It's dizzying. The key is to understand that interpretation of laws change over time. Medieval coverture usually defaulted to the interpretation of coverture, which rendered husband as superior and wife as subordinate. So Williamson's actions were motivated by his correct understanding of hundreds of years of marital common law. However, unfortunately for him, the 1400s was a time when medieval attorneys and judges were increasingly likely to interpret coverture as the legal unity of personhood between husband and wife. But both interpretations continued to shape marriage law for the following centuries. Right. So she just so happened to hit this at the right time when jurists, um, lawyers, and judges were beginning to interpret coverture in this way. Right. Yeah. Right. And before we talk more, I wanted to mention that Alice Crome was really lucky. She had um, incredibly learned and effective counsel. Mm-hmm. And most women wouldn't have been 
this lucky and wouldn't have had those resources. Right. But she was lucky enough to have them. Yeah, absolutely. So for the most part, that's not how it went down. Right. But for her story, is kind of badass, so. Um, so at the risk of muddying the waters, I want to explain a few caveats here. Yes, coverture was extremely powerful and resulted in abuse and loss and grief for women who chose to marry, but not all courts enforced common law. Um, We won't bore you with a rundown of the different English courts and their jurisdictions, but let's suffice it to say that there are a lot and it's complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the Court of Chancery, for example, mostly ruled in favor of wealthy married women who were seeking to limit their husband's claims on their wealth. So they didn't consider the doctrine of coverture in the rulings. They just didn't. Mm. Not to mention, common law ran on precedent, but there were so many conflicting precedents throughout various courts and counties that some lawyers and judges, especially those in rural areas where word of new verdicts was slow to arrive, uh, were ignorant of the specificities of coverture. So they just kind of made it up as they went along. So you can see in English court cases involving coverture, this sort of game of telephone going on where the exact meaning of the law just changes over time and space. We see this with coverture's relationship to business. Under coverture, women were unable to make legal contracts, except for clothing or food, because men, even then, didn't like doing the grocery shopping and clothes shopping. <laughs> At least that's how it is in my house. But, um, yeah, so there was these little, you know, well, women Domains. can't make contracts except for food and clothes. Yeah, because, because we don't want to bother with Yeah, it. that's below us. Um, but when Femme Covert did do business, it was in their husband's name. So he, rather than she, was liable for debts and broken contracts. Husbands could be committed to a debtor's prison for debts they didn't even know they'd incurred. But it was just as common for husbands to coerce their wives into transacting shady business deals, knowing they'd get acquitted on account of their coverture. Mm-hmm. So the law could work both ways, in women's favor and against them. Mm-hmm. It, this reminds me of something that I, I actually don't know very much about, but it's it reminds me of the ways that like husbands and wives can't testify against each other yeah. in court, right. um, how that can work in your favor sometimes because like you can like, you know... Get, I don't know, give evidence to right. your wife, and then it's, like, safe because right. you know, nobody can ask her about it. Right, right, right. right. And I, we mentioned that in the Elizabeth Brownrigg episode, too, that apprentices couldn't give evidence against their masters because mm-hmm. it's the same sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. they, they weren't married, but they Fell under this... the same sort of umbrella. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Within the household. In the city of London, custom allowed for married women to be declared femme sole for commercial purposes. Many London merchants' wives ran their businesses while their husbands traveled and brokered deals abroad. The rules of coverture made commercial growth difficult for these families, who were particularly important to the British economy during the early modern period. So London wives were sometimes exempt from the commercial restrictions of coverture. They could negotiate their own contracts, make purchases on credit, and act as legal owner of goods for sale. But all other aspects of coverture still applied to them. Right. It's so complicated. I know. I know. Um, even if married women were able to obtain femme sole status so they could c- transact business in their own names, this was not always an advantage. It increased the risk and liability for them, risk and liability that rarely paid off because they were constantly at a disadvantage in the business realm. 
Um, they often had fewer business contacts, more household responsibilities, and inferior positions to men when they were negotiating business deals. So it's kind of that thing where men are like, well, men, women are just not as good at business. If they were, they would yeah. be better at it. And it's like, well, it's because we're taking care of all of your yeah, it's background. Like actually structural reasons right. why that is. Right, exactly. By the 1690s, married women all over England were beginning to wise up. Educated elite women realized quickly that John Locke's theories of citizenship were not commensurate with the doctrine of coverture. Femme Covert were comparing their plight to that of slaves. The Ladies' Dictionary of 1694 reads, quote, No woman ever gave her plight in marriage with an intent to be a slave. This discontent with the legal ramifications of marriage coincided with a sharp rise in marriage age. It's unlikely that one caused the other, but at a time when marriage was legally restrictive for women, this rise in marriage age afforded women some extra precious years of legal personhood. So we've talked about this in several other episodes, and most recently in the episode about Elizabeth Brownrigg. So loyal listeners, please forgive me, but I think it bears repeating. The European marriage pattern is integral to understanding the life cycles of early modern women. Um, the European marriage pattern was discovered by statistician John Hodgnall, shows that Northwest uh, European men and women were marrying much later than they had been prior to 1600 and much later in life than men and women in Southern and Eastern Europe. Uh, the difference is that in Northwest Europe, families tended to be nuclear, so couples tended to marry later because of the financial burden of having to establish their own household. So families who lived together with extended family, they could get married early on. They didn't need to have mm -hmm. a bedstead and mm -hmm. they didn't need to buy a house and have to have a mortgage. Like it was, right. they didn't have to have all those things so they could get married before they had built up savings. Mm -hmm. Though the European marriage pattern has not been definitively explained, most historians acknowledge that economic hardship and vast population growth in the 16th century led to a much later age at first marriage for women in early modern Britain, and a greater likelihood that they would not marry at all. This resulted in a stretch of time when most families were unable to care for their growing daughters, yet these women were unable to marry and establish their own households due to a lack of resources. The solution for most was going into service. It would be a mistake to refer to domestic service as an exclusively female institution. Most ordinary men, as well as women, experienced a period of service in young adulthood, but its meaning was gendered. For men, this was another step in the ages of man, one when their involvement in the workplace was just beginning. Mm. They would sometimes become apprentices, then journeymen, and then masters. Mm. Uh, for women, a period of service offered life experience unattached to male relatives, one of both mobility and vulnerability that they may not experience again until widowhood. So this is kind of like a little taste of the femisole life. Mm -hmm. Women usually signed annual contracts at most, but stayed in service for many years, obliging them to move from one household or position to another. This increased mobility and autonomy can be interpreted as positive attributes of this stage of life. While in service, women had relative freedom to socialize and use public spaces such as markets. They were able to temporarily escape the surveillance of parents and siblings and to experience financial freedom from their families as their room and board tended to rely on their work rather than on their family relationships. One can easily overstate the extent of these freedoms, however. Some masters fostered paternal relationships with their female servants, taking it upon themselves to police their servants, ensuring their acceptable dress, behavior, and socialization. 
Many masters exploited the power imbalance between themselves and their plebeian female servants. The more pessimistic view of this time in an early modern woman's life stresses the vulnerability of an unattached woman in a patriarchal society. Think about her susceptibility to male advances while in service and the dangers of illegitimate birth. In early modern England, rape was legally undifferentiated from seduction, so real female sexual agency was impossible, uh, even at the stage of increased autonomy. The possibility of illegitimate pregnancy was a considerable danger. The historical record is full of anecdotes about masters begetting children on their female servants, the futures of whom depended on his goodwill. The 1563 Statute of Artificiers gave local officials the right to order unmarried women from the ages of 12 to 40 into domestic service. This policy made sense to a patriarchal society with a growing population of unmarried women. Somewhat ominously, this act of parliament specified an age range that coincides with a woman's most fertile years. So most historians regard this policy as an indirect attempt to control the reproduction of single women. Right, so if you were a single woman of reproductive age and you're supposed to be being a virgin, they're like, oh, let's like let's put them to work and, you know, um, give them something to do that will be less likely to, you know, be bearing bastards or whatever. Even though their masters were having yeah, it didn't sex work. with them and they were having babies anyway. Yeah, it didn't but work. It, it was, was the idea. Yeah. The, the opposite was the case. Right. But the idea that that was their plan. Right. Um. Is kind of interesting. Um, so life cycles for women were more likely to be determined by their sexuality than by their professional and public lives as they were for men. The milestones of courtship, marriage, and motherhood follow the period of service in an early modern woman's life, while marriage and parenthood do not feature as milestones in an early modern man's life at all. Mm-hmm. Um, right. His his sort of biggest milestones are um, occupation-related. Mm-hmm. Like, did they become a part of a guild? Did they mm-hmm. become a journeyman? Did they become a master? Right. Did they retire? Whatever. Yeah. The, just to interrupt you for one second, mm-hmm. and, and forgive me if you talk about something similar, but there's a really famous um, um, etching that was in, like, Harper's Weekly or something in the 19th century that is, like, the life stages of a woman. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's, like, she's a little girl, and then she's a little girl, like, she's an older girl at, like, a coming out sort of ball. Mm-hmm. And then it shows her as a newlywed, and then as a young mother, and then as an older mother, and then as a, a you know, a grandmother with little children around her. Right. Um, it, and so it's, this is, this is all that a woman's life consists of. These right. Are the major stages of life. Her relationship so. to her family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, women started out as daughters in their father's household, so those are virgins. Um, once again, it doesn't matter if they actually are virgins right, or not. Right, right. Um, then moved into a period of service where they were supervised by their masters, and they were still theoretically virgins, but with new fathers. Their master was their new father. Right. After the period of service, the vast majority of early modern women then opted for marriage. They became femme covert. <clears throat> The potential for conflict became even more acute in the world of married women. Marriage was more than just a ceremony between two partners. For women, marriage signaled their matriculation into a new caste, the theoretical, if not actual, transition from virginity to married womanhood. Sexual activity within marriage became expected, and married women played distinct roles in society that were closed to their unmarried counterparts. Many married women fostered positive homosocial bonds. So by homosocial, I mean with other women. Mm-hmm. So women with like, other women. Mm-hmm. 
Um, examples include the friendly exchange of recipes, the positive female culture surrounding lying in and childbirth, and the dominance of married female voices in local parish politics. So women tended to be really um, important in parish politics. For centuries, historians scoffed at routine interactions like letter writing, recipe swapping, and the exchange of small gifts. But now we understand them as important bonds between a cast of married women. Mm -hmm. Married women had prescribed roles in early modern society. They played important roles in negotiating the marriage of others. It might be good to note here that plebeian daughters exercised more autonomy in choosing a partner than actually did their elite counterparts, which it might be counter to what you might imagine. Yeah, it might be counterintuitive. Anyway. Elite marriages were always as much business transactions as they were family affairs. So those women were often coerced into marriages that were good for business. The autonomy that women did have was often eclipsed by a vibrant female culture of interference. Mothers, aunts, grandmothers, sisters, cousins, and neighbors, all femme covert, regularly interceded in the courtship negotiations of their loved ones. These married women considered themselves to be expert mediators between their unmarried relatives and the male world. Their power was considerable as they were able to influence the outcome of courtship negotiations through direct interventions or indirect social sanctions in the case of their disapproval. So if they, if, you know, uh, their young niece or whatever was getting married and they disapproved, um, they were, they had enough clout in this sort of cast of married women that they could totally tank this courtship. Mm-hmm. Um, this is another example of a separate female culture that ran parallel to and independently from the male culture of courtship. It's tempting to see these interactions as some kind of secret sisterhood bubbling under the surface. It's an example of how the potential for strong female alliances is actually created by the patriarchal order. So this problem of coverture, there's like sort of benefits mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. these so the sort of cast of women are incurring. Mm-hmm. But it's a mistake to see this female culture as a harmonious one, since women sometimes acted as agents against the wishes or best interests of their female relatives. The elevated status of married women could be coercive and injurious to others. Many relationships between married and unmarried women were exploitative. Married women often held their knowledge of sexuality over the heads of their unmarried relatives and sometimes agreed to surveil the bodies of suspected fallen women using their supposedly advanced sexual knowledge against single counterparts in a in defamation suits or in infanticide cases. Right. So when you hear stories of an infanticide case where they're trying to figure out if someone mm-hmm. had just given birth recently, right. they find an old, you know, woman. They find, like, you know, like, Goody Sanders down the street, mm-hmm. whatever. It's always, like, this married woman, and they assume that she'll have some sort of extra special knowledge because she's been in between the sheets with her husband mm-hmm. for whatever. Um it's not quite the case, but right. <laughs> um, gatherings around lying in and childbirth are often described as positive female spaces. The birthing room offered opportunities for midwives to ply their trade and neighbors and relatives to support their loved ones physically and emotionally during lying in and labor. Of course, it sometimes was like this, but only when the birthing woman was a femme couvert. When laboring women were unmarried and therefore supposed to be virgins, midwives and other attendees at birth coerced laboring women into naming the fathers of their illegitimate children. Perhaps the birthing room can be both at the same time, a place of tender, neighborly homosociality with the potential for conflict and coercion. 
The same can be said of city streets, which were also the domain of married women. It was on the doorstep in the streets that married women lived their lives, gathering to gossip, aid neighbors, and mediate conflict. Married women took the lead in policing their own communities based on agreed-upon social norms. This role had the potential to be divisive just as often as it was... You don't say divisive? No, I say divisive. That's not a word. Divisive? Yeah. It is. I say divisive. It's divisive. Well, divisive is a perfectly acceptable pronunciation of that word. Okay. The role... This role had the potential to be divisive just as often as it was community building. Wow, I learned something new about you today. Mm-hmm. You did. Divisive? I've never heard anyone say divisive. It's fancier when you say divisive. Okay. It just proves that I'm fancier. Oh, than you, you are, are fancy. Anyway, though the homosocial bonds created in the birthing room and on the city streets were meant largely to be enjoyed by married women only, homosocial bonds were also common among unmarried women. Femme soul, who enjoyed all the legal advantages that married women were deprived of, tended to stick together, but out of necessity. Single women often needed to live together to stave off insolvency, so they were often just so incredibly poor that they couldn't live without each other um widowhood was one avenue to this position never marrying in the first place was also a common practice even though all women were theoretically destined to become married unmarried womanhood in modern america is often touted as a triumph of feminism over the patriarchal order but early modern women were the og feminists because as many as 25 percent of early modern europeans never married But ultimately, remaining unmarried in a patriarchal world left early modern women vulnerable to rape, poverty, and accusations of deviance. Like, um, witch hunts, right? Like, there was tons and tons of those. So despite the many disadvantages of life as a femme covert, many of them were in good shape. Marriage was an exclusive club, one that offered the possibility of financial and social stability that was denied to many. Right. So we're sort of thinking, like, why would you choose to get married then? Why wouldn't you just cohabitate with right. someone or something if, right. if being married would have all these disadvantages? Mm-hmm. But um, this sort of secret cast of married – not secret, but this sort of cast of married women, mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons. They held a, a sort of higher position in society. Now, this prologue of sorts is for Sarah because I can tell she's just going to explode if she can't talk about the 19th century U.S. Basically. That's yeah, basically life. she has to. Um, so as we described in this episode, coverture was interpreted and applied differently throughout time and space. But its existence remained unchallenged for centuries. The doctrine was imported wholesale to the American colonies and remained intact in the fledgling United States of America. This is until 1839 in Mississippi, when the doctrine of coverture was systematically dismantled over the following four decades at the state legislative level because it became a key issue in American women's fight for suffrage. The Married Women's Property Act of 1839. As American history tends to be, <laughs> this law's history is fraught with with race problems. But here's a quick preview. Maybe... Um, We should do an episode on this one. Yeah, maybe we could do a whole episode on just this. Yeah. So a a woman named Betsy Love, who was a Chickasaw Indian, challenged the doctrine of coverture on the grounds that American Indian women should not be subject to Anglo marriage laws. She won her suit and was able to keep her property despite being married. It's worth noting that the property she wanted to keep was an enslaved woman. 
Mississippi legislators and white women activists worked to pass the Married Women's Property Act almost in retaliation. They argued that if American Indian women were allowed to defend their property rights in court, then white women should be able to also. Right. It's super, super problematic for a million different reasons. Those 19th century white (laughs) feminists were something else. They were something else. Um, So this is one time in history when something actually happened in America first. And I constantly make fun of Sarah because she'll say, oh, this is the first time this ever happened. This came out of the 19th century. Except for 300 years ago when it happened in London. Yeah, but nobody cares about that. Yeah, everybody cares about it. But um, coverture was not challenged in courts in the United Kingdom until the 1870s, 1880s in 1890s with a series of Married Women Property Acts. I'm not exactly sure what this means, but I find it interesting that coverture was dismantled by laws regarding property when coverture affected all aspects of women's life, not just property ownership. So we've talked about, like, the their liability for crimes and um, liability, inability to get sued, or, you know, there's lots of different things that, that coverture effects but by the 19th century the only part that really mattered was the property law mm-hmm. um so part of the reason for this is that by the late 19th century only the parts of coverture that involved property ownership were being enforced anymore so right. um even though coverture still existed like as much as it ever existed because it kind of never existed because right. it's common law and it's kind of a fiction. Yeah. But um, it existed just as much as it ever had. Uh, but only the bits about property um, were singled out by women's rights activists in the 19th century. Um, so it's arguable that these um, white feminists who um, – I think it was one particular white feminist. I, I can't remember her, her name or her husband's name, but she was married to like a state – Um, councilman or something in Mississippi. And he's the one Hmm. who passed the laws that white women didn't have to follow coverture. Um, And it was at his wife's urging because she was like, wait, this American Indian woman doesn't have to do it. I shouldn't have to do it either. So it's Mm -hmm. weird that like weird race wars in America are the reason that coverture stopped everywhere. That is Um, interesting. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah, very weird. And you love it because it just just vindicates you. It does. It makes you feel like... 19th century America is where it's at. It's interesting, too, that it was, you know, you think about that kind of like a quote unquote progressive kind of law, right? Giving Mm -hmm. women this the right to property as being sort of progressive Mm -hmm. happening in Mississippi and happening so that this woman could keep a slave. Right. I mean, it's it's this progressive sort of thing. Like we're getting more and more freedoms, but it's actually giving women the freedoms that they're getting as the is to take freedom away from other people, which just has America written all over yeah, it. Yeah, right? it's just yeah. totally so American. It's yeah. unreal. Um, so yeah, and then once once the um, English women saw these kind of women's property acts being passed in state legislatures in the United States, they were like, "Wait a minute! Like we're, you know, um, behind the ball on this." And mm. it took them forty years to. To pass similar marriage acts. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, too, that, that um, as you said, the, the other aspects of coverture sort of fall away. And it's the property that remains. And that's what they're kind of fighting for in the 19th century, right? Right. And, yeah. Um, except for, we mentioned very early in the episode, rape. Yes. Right? The idea of marital rape. Um, I can't. No, I can't write. It seems like it was just recently in the news, but there are still people who don't believe that you can be raped in marriage. Right. Um, and like I said at the beginning, I 
will never stop thinking that it is horrifying that marital rape was was not a thing. It didn't exist in right. New York State until the 1970s. Yeah. Right. Um, so in that aspect, coverture lasted a super long time. Right. The social aspects of yeah, coverture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I guess the, the most striking part is that women not being accountable to their crimes, just like somebody who is mentally ill or mm-hmm. developmentally delayed yeah, or whatever, yeah. mm-hmm. um, that part fell by the wayside Real early yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's kind of one of the most interesting parts of, like, the 18th century to me is that was, like, the pinnacle. That's that's when people were getting off on crimes for this reason. Yeah. Um, and it's just amazing. I mean, it's just because, I don't know, to me, the 18th century seems really similar to the society we live in now compared to medieval England or something. Mm-hmm, it's Obviously, mm-hmm. it's all relative. But um, I just think to myself, like, I could have murdered someone and just been like, oh, I'm a married woman. And then they'd say, oh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah you're good to yeah. go. Like, it's just. It's wild. Yeah. And it just infantilizes women. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of offensive to think about like that because they're treated like children. Right. But in real life, everybody knew women weren't like children. Right. In real life, women ran the show. So, right. like, what, you know, it's a very interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. dynamic it must have been. And it, it's another example of. Of thing of laws that work against women that are specifically created to you know control women, but also sort of working in women's favor, right? You know, yeah, and and them knowing that and being able to sort of work within that, whether it's to get away with murder or to create these kind of networks of friendships and power structures that they had within right. kind of their worlds, right? Um, which women continue to do, you know. No, in the I mean, we're, in the United States, yeah, in the 19th century, sorry, right. <laughs> and now, yes, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, it's it's true. It's an interesting thing. Yeah. So, um, I think that's all we have for you today. Yeah. Um, remember, this is the second of four episodes in our law series. So stay tuned for um, the next episode in our law series on the Nuremberg Laws in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, it's super fascinating. Really and, fascinating. Um, keep in mind, you can listen to these episodes just as a one-off. You don't have to listen to them all, but if you listen to the thematic episodes together, it can kind of tie some things together for you yeah. over, over time and space. It's yeah. kind of interesting. Definitely. They work together in a way. Yeah. yeah. But you don't have to listen to them that way. You can listen to them however your little heart desires. Yeah. Do what you want. Be free from coverture. <laughs> be free from coverture. Um, okay, so... Uh, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We're on Pinterest. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, and we have else? a super no. secret uh, Tree Fort oh, Facebook group. Yes. Um, and if you want in on that, you can just um, direct message us on Twitter or email us at hello at digpodcast.org, um, and we will... Get you in the back door. Mm-hmm. You'll see. <laughs> no, not the sexual we'll back door. Get you in the back door. <laughs> we'll just give you some backstage access yeah, to, there we go. to the, to to the our podcast. Lives. And we talk about episodes and we talk about, you know, just whatever. And we share um, funny historical memes. Right, right, right. Um, also, on our website, digpodcast.org, you'll find show notes, transcripts, pictures that go along with every episode. And a lot of times um, you'll hear us talking about books that we use or that we recommend um you'll find lists of all of those books there so if you're interested in uh buying them or going to the library to borrow them that all that information is there as well and we do encourage you to do that because we rely on the work of some really fantastic historians to put right. these together and we want to support them yeah yes so we'll catch you next time peace out bye bye the same can be true 
Uh, I gotta get Google. <laughs> That's racist, Sarah. Uh, sorry. It's like, because I ate now, there's like goobers in my throat. Okay, you're taking a real yeah, long you time. Are. You're, t- you're moseying pretty. Really okay, fine. molasses. Molasses Melvin. The 1563 Statue of Art <laughs> You just laughed at the funniest laugh. It's so cute. <laughs> You're so cute. In the 1963... What? Not 1963. Or, um, oh, no, 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 no. oh, my God. <laughs> this is far from 1963. <laughs> Super. So I was like, no way it's 1963. Okay. Oh my god, I said 1963. <laughs> it's 1632. Okay. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like you even. I really can't. Numbers. My one eye, my contact just keeps floating, so I maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Um, in the night. Oh my god, what the fuck? <laughs> okay. No, 